Salty Thoughts with Tamal Dodge. So we are graced with Kia Miller today on the podcast. Kia is a world-renowned yoga teacher currently traveling and sharing her gifts with the masses. We are so happy to have you. Thank you. <laughs> so I know I've known you and Tommy for a long time, but I don't really know a lot about your back history, how you grew up, where you grew up. Let's um, trail it back a little bit and um, tell us a little more about yourself. Well, I, I'm British. I'm from the Falkland Islands originally, which is off the southeast coast of Argentina. I grew up on a 110,000 acre farm mm. uh, with uh, 36,000 sheep, <laughs> about 150 horses and cattle. My father managed the farm. And uh, so my whole childhood was just uh, riding my horses over vast acres of land. Wow. That yeah. sounds really unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even as I'm speaking, I have this image of this two-and-a-half-mile sand beach that I would go and ride my horses along. There was penguins at the far end, and it was just beautiful. So, interestingly, I spent a lot of time alone in nature when I was growing up. I'm pretending like I'm not jealous, but I am a little <laughs> bit jealous. <laughs> I saw a post a long time ago where Tommy must have been where you grew up or whatever. And he's like, the most amazing thing happened. There was like this sheep and Kia just jumped off and picked up the sheep and like carried the sheep. He's like, I do not know who my wife is. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing taking my husband, Tommy, who grew up in New York City. <laughs> the first thing that happened when we arrived in the Falklands is my brother picks us up and he takes us to his farm and he's uh, in the midst of landmarking, which is a pretty intense thing if uh, you've... If you've never done it, they're, they're uh, cutting tails off lambs <laughs> and they're putting elastic bands around the male parts of oh, lambs. Oh it's a hard thing to witness. Is I mean, Tommy witnessing that? So he was witnessing it and he was like, where have you brought me? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. rugged uh, farm life where yeah. you're completely isolated he had all these great ideas of business opportunities that he wanted my brother to do or my mm. brother's friends and my brother just kept saying look we're 300 miles off the coast of Argentina we have one flight a week that comes into the main town there's 2,800 people oh <laughs> so, so all these business ideas are really not going to fly here right <laughs> now unless you're a farmer or a fisher or uh, you want to grow things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the population is so small. So you're riding around in nature as a kid and just being immersed in this, sounds like a fairy tale land almost, <laughs> and by yourself. That's pretty wild. Did you find that it was uh, lonely or fulfilling? How did that experience make you feel being in a place that was so isolated? Um, maybe because I didn't have anything to juxtapose it Two, at least not until I was seven when I went to boarding school in Argentina, which was very different. But those early years, um, I think I've always enjoyed being alone. I've never had an issue with being alone. And so, and I, and I also never felt alone because I was super close to the animals, mm. the, the horses and the sheepdogs. I would mm. train horses in the summer. I would train the sheepdogs. So I had all these jobs that I did on right. the farm. Um, so no, I didn't feel lonely. Mm. Yeah, it's really wild. I mean, uh, I was, uh, grown up and raised in a very large family of seven children and a yoga ashram. And even though we're surrounded by a lot of people and things like that, we were also constantly given an opportunity to be by ourselves, mm -hmm. which is really wild. Mm -hmm. And children, I feel like aren't really given that opportunity to be by themselves and not only to be by themselves, but when they are by themselves, they're given something to really distract them. Yeah. Like here's your yeah. iPod here's yeah. iPhone, here's television, here's computer. And yeah. then they don't actually get the sense of what it feels like to think 
and feel and breathe and be by themselves and experience yeah. that. And then I think it's one of the reasons why people have a hard time coping with it yeah. and having intense, oh my God, I'm alone. I have nothing to do. And they're freaking out and yeah. not learning how to um, be content. Yeah. I just uh, heard this term, info dementia. Mm. That people are getting so overloaded with information <laughs> because that's what we're tending to do rather than sit quietly yeah. and do nothing and just contemplate or be. We're turning to the device. And so then we're just taking in more information, more imagery, more everything. And so uh, one of my teachers called it info dementia <laughs> that he says leads to what he calls cold depression, yeah. which is, just, you know, a state of, of real disconnection. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It's it's so wild when, you know, there's this thing they call social media mm. and we're supposed to be more social and more connected, but, you know, science shows that we're more disconnected than we've ever been. Yeah. That you can actually sit at a dinner table, even in public in a restaurant, and everyone's sitting with a group of people, but everyone's just on their phones, not looking at each other or talking to each other. Yeah. And you have a whole restaurant full of people. Yeah. Like, how's that show that there's any kind of connection anymore? Yeah. It's just completely yeah. disconnected under this name of being social. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or it's even more strange when people are sitting across from each other and rather than talking to each other, they're texting each other or messaging each other. Yeah. You're like, whoa, what is happening now? <laughs> Put down the, the little buffer that's in between you, the technological device, and yep. make some eye contact. Yeah. <laughs> so, um,. You were growing up in this island, and then you moved uh, to go to school in Argentina uh, as mm -hmm. a kid. Mm -hmm. And how long were you there for in Argentina? Uh, four years. Oh, wow. Seven through 11. Mm -hmm. Did your parents move with you when you did all that? Or no, they stayed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. I had the choice. I could go to England and come home once every three years, or I could go to Argentina and come home once a year. So I went to, to Argentina, and then I got to be at home for three months of the year. Wow, this sounds like a book. <laughs> it does. It sounds like a book. I feel like at any moment you're saying, and then when I came back one year on the island, I discovered these little gnomes that lived in the island. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's amazing. And so then after school, wh where did you go next? What did you do? Well, interestingly, I was taken out of uh, boarding school when I was 11 because um, my mother uh, left the Falklands, left uh, my father and went to move in Eng to England. Mm. And then two years later, I stayed with my dad. Two years later, the Falklands War happened. So mm. then I was right in the middle of a war, literally, mm. um, housing most of the helicopter pilots and the Harrier jet pilots in our house. The Harrier jets were landing on our hayfield. Um, and it was kind of the British HQ for the Falklands War. It was It was happening out of our house. <laughs> and uh, I clocked up hours and hours and hours in the little parachute mid-seat between the pilot and the co-pilot in the helicopters. Oh my God. And I just flew around the islands. I guess, you know, less regulations down there. <laughs> and so that was part of my experience. Yeah. Um, after the initial craziness of the war settled down and they were still moving troops around and everything. Wow. And then, mm. wow, it just gets crazier and crazier, <laughs> wilder and wilder. Um, so then from there, did you move to London and end up living there for a while or did you move to the States after? I moved to England, actually, yeah. and I ended up living there for a while. Um, my father passed and so I moved to England to live with my mother. Hmm. And, uh, and that was actually when I discovered yoga. That was the, my saving grace, you could say. Wow. How did uh, you find yoga? In, in, was it in London or in, what a part it of England? It was actually in a book. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was, it was a huge shift for me to move to England. Um, I remember walking down the street and being like uh, the guy in Crocodile Dundee just saying hello to everybody because that's what you do in the Falklands and now I'm in a city and it's right. not appropriate <laughs> it should be um, but it's not but it was an intense transition but somehow in that transition I uh, picked up a book uh, by Raquel Welsh on beauty 
And right when I was uh, an early teenager, it was Raquel Welsh and Jane mm. Fonda, who yeah. were like the <laughs> mega babes that, you know, all the young girls wanted to be like. Right. So I remember thinking, if it's good enough for Raquel, it's good enough for me. Yeah. And then I started to practice. And interestingly, maybe because I had a lot of jobs on the farm when I grew up, so I was really used to discipline. It wasn't something that I struggled with. So I pretty easily did the practice mm. almost every day for two years. Wow. In front of my crazy oval-shaped mirror in my mother's house. <laughs> <laughs> From a book. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, most people talk about they stumbled into this yoga class or this yoga scene or at a festival. Wow. Um, was it then that you knew that you wanted yoga to be a huge part of your life or did that come later? Um. I knew then that it was going to be part of my life, but it wasn't until I moved to London and I actually went into a live class mm. that the impact of it really hit me. Mm. Um, and that's when I started to discover a lot about myself. Um, I started modeling, so I was in London, uh, traveling around a lot. It was a very fast-paced life, and I was very disconnected. Yeah. Um, uh, so the yoga helped me to reclaim kind of the connection that I used to have in my youth. Just learning to breathe, learning to stretch, learning to move uh, with grace. So my first beginning was Ashtanga yoga, which, mm. you know, yeah. very athletic. Yeah. That was the first class I happened to stumble into in <laughs> London. Yeah, very vigorous. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of so many things right now but one of them is you know I think of yoga as even though it's in a group setting a lot in these classes that we teach and you know people experience them in these group settings it is really also a very personal experience that's happening on your yoga mat it's also very yeah. much um, a loner activity if you want to say that it really yeah. is um, what you're experiencing what you're breathing and what you're feeling is completely individualized and different than the person next to you you know like I took a class this morning and you know, there was a guy next to me who was modifying everything. The girl on my right was doing handstands every chance she could she yes. could get. You know, but everyone it was welcome to do what they wanted in their practice. But everyone's feeling something different, experiencing something different. Um, and you know, I think about you know you're talking about your childhood and your time mm -hmm. alone and things like that. But I think mm -hmm. yoga can also teach people to how to just be quiet be by themselves, be alone a little bit, because one, we're not talking the whole time, only the teacher right? is talking, you yep. just listen, which yep. is hard, you know, and then also gives people tools to do it um, solo, make yep. a home practice and do things yep. that are completely unplugged. And it's amazing at how loud your, your head can be, the voice in your head can be, mm -hmm. even in the midst of a yoga class. Yeah. Right? Unbelievable. Just that feeling of going in, in a disturbed place yeah and uh disconnected place and sometimes just how long it can take to come back to connection yeah it's an interesting process yeah yeah and some days are better than others yeah, some days are better than others yeah. yeah um so i wanted to talk a little bit about how you kind of molded or came into teaching yoga mm. and how did that unfold yeah i was living in new york uh right at the beginning of the whole internet boom and i was practicing at uh jiva mukti mm. and so i many people really enjoyed sharon and david so much and i really enjoyed the spiritual perspective that they were sharing even though a lot of it was over my head at the time mm. so going to their classes while i was working in new york uh, really inspired me and I wanted actually to do their teacher training, but then I ended up moving to California and I ended up going to Yoga Works and studying with all the greats who were around at that time, the yeah. Shiva, the Sean, the Saul, the Max, the, um, all of those people. Yeah. And, um, but my primary practice was still Ashtanga. Yeah. And so Chuck and Matty, who first owned Yoga Works, were my main teachers. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's wild to hear how many people came through um, Sharon and Gannon. Yes. It's unbelievable. There's yeah. always a tie. Like every, So many yeah. of the people I've talked to on the podcast are always talking about, oh, well, I first started with, whether it was Sean Korn and a handful of other people, you, 
It's really wild. Yeah. Well, I think they're sharing something that really is the essence of yoga. They've not shied away to make their yoga commercial. They've really connected to, you know, the aspect of ahimsa, of non-harming. Um, and they've taken that, you know, into its total expression. Yeah. I mean, I always talk about that um, in teacher trainings, too, the importance of um, not diluting the teachings to yeah. suit others' beliefs or to make people feel comfortable. Yeah. I'm like, actually, the purpose of yoga is to make you feel uncomfortable. Oh, great. Because it makes yes. you change. Yeah. If you're always comfortable, we could just sit on your couch right now and just, yeah. you know, eat a giant bowl of Tommy's guacamole and never work out again. <laughs> but you have to exercise, and the physical practice is uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. Sitting in a warrior two for five minutes, I don't think everyone's in there going, I could just be here all day because I'm oh, so uncomfortable. No. And like the physical practice is uncomfortable, and the spiritual stuff mm-hmm. really makes, especially Westerners, uncomfortable. And you yeah, know, I think about even Ahimsa, it's like the first. Yeah. that you read in Pantajali's Eight Sutras, and yeah. yet it's the one that gets the most twisted and distorted and yeah. changed just because, one, people have a hard time following it, or yeah. two, they want to suit what everybody's going to be comfortable with. Yeah, I always talk about um, if I came into a group of every yoga teacher under the sun and I said, I'm going to do a chaturanga with one hand turned in, one hand turned out, and I'm going to lower like this, forever. This is my version of Chaturanga. I said, every teacher will say, no, you're going to get injured. You got to have both elbows and fingers pointing forward. You know, you can't have one elbow sticking out, one elbow in. It's going to be totally weird. And I go, why? And I said, every teacher will say it's going to create injury. And then I would say, well, how come there's no room for interpretation on this Chaturanga, but all the spiritual stuff, they say there is room for interpretation. I think that if you change the spiritual stuff, there will be spiritual injury. Right. Just like if you change the poses, there will be physical injury. Like that. You know, so mm-hmm. I do think that what Sharon and David Life are doing with Ahimsa and just yep. <laughs> no holds barred is actually really powerful. It and is Look powerful. how many people have changed and got inspired and shared the inspiration. Yeah, and, and it might not all resonate, and it certainly didn't all resonate. Some of the tactics were a little intense for me, even back then, and... Um, but but I could feel the integrity underneath yeah. it, and that's what was so attractive. Yeah. You felt the passion. Mm-hmm. Felt yeah. the passion and yeah. the commitment, their own commitment to living the principles that they're teaching. I think that's perhaps one of the most powerful things any of us can do, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, my God. I definitely think so. You have to practice what you preach. You have, yes. to, you have to walk the talk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit um, about cleansing because I know you mm. do that regularly and yeah. I know you put people through cleanses and have a bunch of programs and stuff tell us a little more about that and how did that actually kind of uh, come about and like how did you discover cleansing yeah well you know I've had a little bit um, I had a good relationship with food when I was growing up but then um, my mother was anorexic actually when I was she I was in in the womb oh wow and uh, anorexic uh, through my childhood um, particularly in my younger years, and so um, I had a I had a, a healthy relationship myself, but I always remember her dialogue around food, her out loud dialogue, and um, and then when I moved to live with her after my father passed, I I got my own version of a very skewed relationship with food. Mm. Um, all through my modeling, twelve years of modeling, I was throwing up my food, mm. so I had this really warped um relationship yeah uh i was also highly allergic to certain foods that i was eating that was setting up uh conditions of inflammation and fogginess and not feeling good so there was a lot all tied in to the reason i was doing what i was doing uh and yet the thing that the, the defining moment where i stopped doing that was when I realized that I was stunting my spiritual growth. Mm. My spiritual growth was so important to me, the things I was learning through a few different uh, yoga teachers at the time, that I I recognized that if I was going to keep uh, smothering my emotions with food and then rejecting it, that I wasn't giving myself the opportunity to process them and go through them, 
So I kind of I got on a path to healing that began there. But then when I moved to the United States, I uh, started hanging out with a woman who had been very sick herself. And we both went on a uh, live food, raw food diet for a couple of years. And my whole system changed. Um, So all the inflammation that I was getting through the foods that I was allergic to, the breads and the wheats and the things like that, um, left my body. I started to feel clear, more confident, more connected. And uh, then shortly after that, I did my first cleanse. I did a month-long deep intestinal cleanse. Mm. And it was really intense. Yeah. And a uh, what? A long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it went in stages. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was, it was a well-designed one. But it was interesting that what I found was I got very insecure through that month-long process. And I was uh, in the film business at that time or TV world. And I needed to be strong. I was a producer and I was a leader. But I was having this interesting experience because I was cleansing through part of it, Mm. of feeling unbelievably insecure. And I realized that it was a lot of the other emotional stuff that I hadn't dealt with that was coming, that was being revealed. And um, so I've been cleansing twice a year, not for that long, um, a few more that were a month long, but usually just a week to 10 days. Um, since then I've been cleansing twice a year and for me it's my reset button yeah because the 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 food relationship thing and the habitual eating around food and the emotional eating or the using food or caffeine as a crutch all of those things that I think especially when we're so busy all of us and if you're traveling a lot and you can't get the food that you'd like to be eating our choices change, and um, so what I find it does is it, it helps me to reset my relationship with food on this kind of biannual basis, usually the spring and the fall. And so I, I clear myself out. My favorite thing about it is the clarity that mm. I get after a cleanse, that feeling of just being a very clear channel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always look at food as um, <laughs> very, like you were saying, there's there's a spiritual connection to food. It's something you do three times a day, some people less, some people more. And, um, you know, I think that's, it's, I think that it's so important that one also, it is one of, it is Ponticelli's first thing that you read. Yeah. <laughs> has to do with, you know, non-harming and creating yeah. the least amount of harm as possible. And food is a huge part of that. And, um, you know, I also think about, live food like you were saying that how it reset you and it changed everything and i think of food raw food not just filled with enzymes but i think about how plants they grow during the day from the sun they harness the sun's energy they also grow at night and harness the moon and the Mm. stars energy and all that kind of stuff so it's like when you eat it you're not just there's a wonderful um md out there named gabriel cousins and uh, he talks about not just the enzymes you're getting from the food but you're literally your food is solar powered yes. you know yeah i know that sounds probably really psychedelic <laughs> to some of our audience but it is it's charged by the sun during the day and then the moon and the stars at night and then you're eating yeah. really universal yeah. energy if you really think about yeah. it um and it charges your body and changes the way you feel you think and your body's alive you eat things that are alive it makes you more alive Oh, I, I've been doing this soup through my cleanse, and the moment that I drink it, it's got avocado and everything in it, so I do cleanses that are really nourishment-based. Yeah. And um, I'll be high, literally high energy, for two, three hours afterwards. Yeah. It's amazing how uh, sluggish we can feel so often after we eat, but yeah. when we clear things out, that whatever we eat, it immediately is drawn into the body. I know you have a good history with cleansing too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm one of those people that's just fascinated by health and wellness in Mm -hmm. general. Mm -hmm. And also I'm fascinated by how other people are approaching it, you know, and doing things with it. And, you know, you'll find, I, I at least find that a lot of people are all on the same page with, you have to eat a lot of raw foods and yes. raw vegetables and yes. greens and salads and uh, build up your enzyme depot and surcharge your body with really good energy. You know? yeah. It's just like food in general. Like 
If you eat food that is um, dead food, yeah. how does something that is dead give you life? That's right. You know, but if you eat something that is live, that is alive, that is filled with energy, and it gives you life, you know? And then you need less of it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a key thing as well, that we, we all eat so much. Yeah. But if we eat less and it's higher quality, and as you said, more leaning toward live food, uh, we don't need so much. So our body is not constantly bogged down energetically with digestion and processing of yeah. what, what we're putting into it. Oh, it's so sustainable. Yes. It's sustainable for your own body and sustainable for the world. Yes. You know, um, it's interesting. I, I was um, giving a talk. I've been doing these. Uh, it's a free course that I offer to the public that are just six-week courses on meditation and yoga philosophy. And we oh, go through new him, Ahimsa and mm-hmm. we go through karma and reincarnation and all these things. But we were talking about quota, everyone's quota, you know? Mm. And that when everyone's in their natural quota and their natural balance in life, how everything... Uh, falls into its own place yep. you know it's only when we step out of our quota that things get go sour or go south and they fall apart um we we're talking about you know just ahimsa in general and reincarnation and karma we're talking about how you know everything in life has a living being or a soul that gives it life you know, mm. I was like, we talk about in yoga, everything is given life with a jiva atma, a spiritual being, a soul mm. that gives it life, whether it's a human, an animal, a plant, insect, mm. you know, and people go, well, how then is ahimsa creating least harm if something has a, a soul that is giving it life, whether it be a plant mm-hmm. or a human form or an animal form? What if mm-hmm. I want to eat one plant and then somebody eats one cow, mm-hmm. one for one? How is it? any yep. different one for one but it really isn't one for one ahimsa just means creating the least amount of harm as possible i mean we live in a world i love that, that. is material yeah and it's filled with pain yes. you turn on the nightly news there's going to be pain you just yep. going to turn the news off every night because it's so bad you go to a, a science lab and you look at your skin under a microscope and you'll see these billions of creatures that are microscopic hmm. yep. that crawl in your skin and they look like crocodiles when you actually look at them and every time you wipe your skin you've like destroyed a colony <laughs> right right so you live in a world where there is always going to be harm there's always going to be suffering but how do you create the least amount of harm as possible i love that as a definition as a real working definition of a himself non-harming yeah and i love that then people i bring in consideration <laughs> it's not really just one plant like some guy tries to eat a carrot one day and then another guy chooses to eat a cow that it's just one soul for one i'm it comes down to that one pound of beef to make one pound of beef takes 20 pounds of plant creatures. Right. So now you've wiped out 20 pounds of yeah. plant life, plant, plant souls, you know? Yeah. Then you take 2,500 gallons of water to make that one pound of beef, then all the fossil fuels, and then yeah. one cow has to be 1,000 pounds yeah. in order for it to be taken to market, right? Or taken to slaughter. And so now you times 20 pounds of grain, 20 pounds of plant life, times a thousand to make mm. that that animal that is not just one for one you know right you're talking about right. millions and millions and millions of plant animals yeah plant creatures in order to make this one and yeah. really one steak is like a meal for a guy at a steakhouse yeah so 20 pounds of plants to make a small amount of food for one guy yeah creates so much harm yeah and at the world today there's you know 150 billion people don't know 150 billion not million billion animals that are always being oh taken oh in this earth yeah and think about how the un and everybody's always like well, how do we make enough food yeah. for all the humans there's seven billion humans yeah and one billion starving yeah a billion one seventh of the world's population is starving but then i always tell people well, we got to use our intelligence there's 150 billion animals that we're feeding till they're morbidly obese yeah that more than 80 percent of all of our grains and produce and everything get fed to these animals to be fed to a wealthy more privileged yeah. you know people whether it's yeah. america the uk wherever it is um so you know you're taking all these yeah plants to feed these animals to make a smaller amount of food just for the privilege and that's yeah. one reason there's a billion people starving there's so much pollution yeah everything's out of whack you know there's a, a statistic out there it says if everyone ate a plant-based diet if everyone ate a vegetarian diet you could feed two planet earths Mm. But if everybody ate a meat di- meat based diet, you would need two planet Earths. Mm. So that's a sign that we step outside of our quota. 
It's so interesting. It's such a sign now of just how imbalanced we've become. Yeah. You know, in our relationship to food. Yeah. And our relationship to the earth. Um, that we're eating so much processed food. We're relying yeah. on sugars to fuel ourselves, which is such a bad fuel for the yeah. body, actually. And yeah, and as you said, we're we're feeding the animals that we're going to end up killing yeah. so that we can eat them. It's definitely a skewed experience that we're having now. It's, yeah. it's not the same as it was in the hunter-gatherer days, <laughs> right? Where every part of the animal is used and they've lived a life and it's, it's different. Um, I try to avoid driving up the five oh, freeway in, in, uh, yeah. in California because there's two massive yeah. Uh, slaughterhouses for cows that is unbelievably disturbing well we're sitting here in california doing this podcast and when we drive on the freeway we see those signs that say severe drought limit outdoor watering yes. which i think is comical because one cow uses two million five hundred thousand gallons of water to make it make it a thousand pounds two million five hundred thousand gallons wow. of water it's yeah. enough to float a navy destroyer ship with all its jets and yeah. and its crew and everybody on it. Yeah, I'm like, oh my god, imagine that! And then there's like 30 billion of those cows that we're raising all the time. Yeah, times two million five hundred thousand times 30 billion. What is that number for water? Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. But again, it's just that idea of what is in our quota. When we step out of our quota, things go out of balance, and also not only things go out of balance, but uh, things are in disharmony. There was a wonderful yes. video on YouTube about uh, Yellowstone National Park. Mm-hmm. How in Yellowstone National Park, they were realizing the entire park was destroyed. Mm. And it's falling apart. All, it was overrun with deer, eating up everything. All these foreign plants and weeds were growing. And all these animals that used to be around were scared off and don't live there anymore because it wasn't the food they used to eat. And they realized the thing that was missing is the whole park was out of balance at Yellowstone mm. because they killed and took out all the wolves. Mm. So then they tried to bring wolves back into the environment and they put a small pack of wolves in Yellowstone National Park and they do a time lapse. And I think it's over the course of a year, the wolves don't eat all the deer, they just chase away a lot of the deer and all these plants start to grow back. And then all these animals that disappeared for so long came back. Beavers oh. came back and built dams and remade the rivers flow and everything turned back to it was like 40 years ago. Amazing. And it looks insane. But they talk about how everything needs its quota. Everything needs to fall in its natural balance. Mm. You know, It's like, look at, look at us now. It's like when we go out of balance, everything falls apart. Mm -hmm. you know? Like every mm -hmm. one second, one one thousand, an acre of rainforest is destroyed mm -hmm. for animal agriculture. Mm -hmm. One one thousand, two one thousand, two mm -hmm. acres. It's like when we go into our natural balance, there's enough for everybody. Everything's cool. Yeah. Everything's yeah. groovy. Yeah. It takes a, a commitment, doesn't it, though, to change our habits yeah, around how we're engaging with just what we consume. Um, not just what we consume as in food, but what we're consuming in general. Yeah. Um, and also figuring out where the good sources of information are. Because yeah. I think that's part of what's happening that I find now is there's just so much information around. And so many diets and fads yes. and like concepts. Yes. Like so how to figure out what's right to you. Yeah. So what I always say to people about their diet is that there's no one diet. Yeah. That we have to tune into ourselves and we have to start to create a more sensitive relationship between what our body's real needs are and to figure out where our cravings come from to figure out um, as I mentioned before just how much food we want to eat and then to look at the environment that we're eating in yeah uh, you know there's so yeah. much around it we, we live in an environment where we already create so much harm unconsciously to ourselves and we don't even realize that even technological devices yeah. zap our energy, make us acidic, make us not yeah. think right, feel right. Not to mention driving a car is a yeah. not a normal activity for human beings to do. It's a foreign activity, breathing car exhaust. And if you really think about your ancestors, none of them were driving cars, using an iPhone four hours a day on a computer, <laughs> right? Yeah. They weren't doing any of the things that we're doing now. So we wonder why our society feels like crazy mm -hmm. i like i have a hard time driving at like 8 30 in the morning sometimes because everyone is so over caffeinated oh yeah stressed out and oh, crazy yeah. i was driving with our sound guy sean one morning and we we're trying to drive to um a podcast 
uh, with Chef Babette, who owns a place called Stuff I Eat out in Inglewood. You, you guys would love her. Oh. But we went out there, and this he was trying to just turn into one lane. <laughs> Nobody would let him in. People were like aggro, flooring it, fat, trying to cut him oh. off. <laughs> oh. It's just too much. Yeah. Because we're already um, living in such a stressed, overstimulated, toxic environment. And right. How do we unplug a little bit and reassess? I feel yeah. like that's what you were saying you were doing. You were just assessing the way your relationship with food, the way you felt, yeah. your spiritual connection, and you just had to... And that's it. It does Cleansing does all of that for me. It really brings uh, on the spiritual, the mental, and the physical level, it really brings a, a, a natural balance back again yeah. where, where my perception is cleared and I'm able to just be more uh, still, more present, and... Um, tuning into what is needed in the moment as, as opposed to just living life as one stream of habitual responses after another, yeah. which is just such an easy pattern to get into. Um, and then practicing kundalini yoga, I, I, I practice kundalini yoga and I, when I offer cleanses, I teach it with the cleanse because the practice generates so much energy that it really helps people to shift through cleanse and detox reactions emotional stuff that might be needing to be cleared and then the the breath work and the and the kriyas the practices really uh elevate people's energy so they get to experience what it's actually like when you're humming at like a really high fine tuned clear vibration and if we sustain that for longer and longer periods of time, life just starts to shift for the better. So that's my experience anyway. Yeah. Mm. Um, how, do you, how do you find balance? You know, I know you travel a lot, and Tommy, your husband, mm. travel a lot. How do you guys find balance in the midst of not only travel, but you guys also take care of a lot of people. You have mm -hmm. students you take care of. There's so much energy you're putting, that you're putting out. How do you guys regather or restore you know that energy that is given it's a good question i think we all have different ways uh i do a lot of silent meditation in the morning i find that is the most restorative thing that i can do because i'm sitting so still and i'm really observing kind of the subtle landscape of my mind so i i get to see an experience when when I'm off and in what way I'm off. One thing I've learned through meditation is just not to personalize things. Oh, I'm like this morning I was unbelievably distracted in my meditation, but I knew it was because I've been cleansing and my energy has shifted and I haven't yet begun to eat um, enough food coming back out of it that my body feels really grounded. Hmm. Yeah. So I was aware, oh, wow, I'm in a really distracted uh, uh, state right now because I need to be more grounded. And so I think that the, the meditation that I'm doing every morning allows me to recalibrate and to, to take the time to understand what I need. I do a lot of uh, yoga nidra as a way to recalibrate when I'm traveling. And... Um, I just uh, cut out any excess activities. Mm. So I become very boring, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going out, I'm not going to dinners, I'm not partying, I'm just doing what I do, yeah. uh, spending time with my husband and my, my dear loved ones. And, you know, my life's become simple, maybe because of that. That's a better kind of life anyway. I'm boring too, just like that. <laughs> I think it's just simple living, higher thinking is where it's at. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You know, yeah. to me, 9 a.m., uh, 9 p.m. is, is oh, late. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, 9 p.m.? Who's going to go out after that? It's like, God, <laughs> I'm in bed by then. <laughs> um, do you find that um, that's also probably a way that you uh, find yourself staying grounded or coping with uh, when life throws you curveballs or there's an uh, unexpected turn of events. Like, uh, life is just unpredictable. Mm -hmm. How do you find that you're able to navigate through those kind of scenarios when they come up? You know, uh, depending on the severity of how one gets thrown off balance, um, uh, sometimes it takes me a few days 
and I'm recognizing that I'm in a reactive state. Maybe I go, something big has happened in my life and I shift blame onto somebody. And I, I, I'm, I'm doing it, but I'm aware that I'm doing it. But I'm also aware that I can't just choose to stop it. It has a cycle. And when I'm through the cycle, I'll be able to see it from a neutral perspective. What all of the, the yoga practice and the meditation has done and the years of, of self-study, of, of observing myself in different situations, it has, it's allowed me to see the cycles that happen. There seem to be a natural human uh, experience. And so I'm not beating myself up mm. if I'm having a moment where I'm placing blame or judging. I'm just aware I'm doing it and I'm also aware, you know, I'm not going to externalize it. Yeah. I keep it to myself and then I just wait until I can shift through that. And I do practices that help me to shift through that. Because um, what I do see is that... <laughs> There's like gardeners yeah. and helicopters it's and all jets happening flying in by. Venice right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I do see, just being a, a yoga teacher and living, you know, on the west coast of uh, the United States, and there's a lot of people who are teaching and practicing yoga here, and I feel like there's this image that people have that if you're a yoga teacher, you can't be angry, or you can't yeah. be this, or you can't be that, or this saying that's just weird to me oh that's not yogic yeah <laughs> I'm like what does that even mean that's not yogic what are you trying to say because we're all human beings and I think that if we if we try to pedestalize ourselves or others and forget the fact that we're human beings and we're all in this process of growth and evolution um, then we might try to bypass our own uh, challenges to try to um, be above certain things and then not deal with it. Does that yeah, make sense? Definitely does. And, you know, I think that it's also selling with people like that's not yogic when the funny <laughs> issue about that is the reason yoga is around and also all of Pantanjali Sutras around is to realize that you're not perfect. Yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's an admittance. Hopefully, yes. if you're really practicing not just the asana, but it's mm -hmm. an admittance that I'm not perfect. Yes. That I need help and I need these tools, yes. you know, towards growth. This is yes. the path towards growing. This is the path towards changing my consciousness and the way I live and the way I operate. That's why so many things in there is just about lifestyle and yeah. things that you need to change. If you were perfect, you wouldn't need to follow any of those things. Yes, <laughs> you know exactly. I mean? <laughs> There's a wonderful teacher that we visit um, with in India every year um, and named uh, Anand Mirotra and he, he talks of this process of self turning self-realization into self-actualization. So turning the realizations that we have about life and um, the ideals that we have, which is great to sit with, but it's a whole other thing to act from that place. Yeah. So in a sense, it's, you know, we're not living in caves anymore and renouncing the world. We're living in the world, and it's a lot harder to hold a meditative state when you're out in the, the fray yeah. of the busy world than if you're sitting somewhere on your own, and that that really is where our, our, our great lessons lie and our challenges lie and our growth and evolution lie right now. Yeah, it's funny because I, I, I was born in Hawaii and people always go, you know, Tamal, I'm having a hard time meditating in this city. I mean, if I just mm. sell all my junk, I move to Hawaii and I can just go hike out to a perfect waterfall mm. in the jungle, sit with my legs cross-legged, I could meditate. And I always tell those people that I grew up in Hawaii and when you hike to that perfect waterfall and you sit and you in a cross-legged position, you close your eyes, in five minutes mosquitoes will eat you alive because <laughs> right? it's great. not really about changing your sky and that will happen yeah it's really just about where your heart and your mind is at you know yes. and you know it's not about yes i have to become a monk and live in a cave you know very few people can do that right um i think it's more about how to take ancient traditions and use them in modern applications that's right and that's what i feel like is happening in yoga right now there's there's an evolution happening Yes, these are ancient practices and um, 
there's power in the tried and tested nature of these ancient practices, but uh, you know, culturally speaking and consciousness speaking, we're, we're evolving so much that these practices have to be um, applied to where we're at now. And so I, I think that's what's exciting to me when I look out in the yoga world and I see what some of the real innovators are doing um, and finding new ways to bring old uh, ancient practices, um, translating them in a way that your average person can relate to them. Mm. So they're not too esoteric, so they're not um, so they're applicable to our lives. Don't we want tools, quick tools? that apply to the very moment that help us to cut through the, the stress and the dis-ease and the discontent and the fragmentation, frag- fragmentation that we feel. Yeah, and making, exactly, making things um, approachable and digestible for people. Yeah. You know, that's also one of the things, like, I wish we could, um, and I want to bridge that gap of making things not just for the yoga community, but people yeah. who have never practiced yoga can take the concepts and ideas and things yeah. that are rooted in yoga that are just so unbelievably helpful and beneficial yeah. and enriching to anyone's life yeah. and being able to apply it and see the differences. You mentioned India before. I know you guys have gone a lot. What keeps drawing you guys back there? Wow. It feels like a, it feels like my spiritual home. Mm. It actually feels like home when I go to Rishikesh, which is in the foothills of the Himalayas. Um, there's a longing in my soul when I'm away from India to keep returning back. It's interesting because India is a challenging place to be <laughs> I remember Tommy, on every level. <laughs> Tommy came back, I think it was his first trip with you there, and he got really sick. Yes. And he he said something to me. He goes, I said to Kia, I said, this is not a vacation. You said, he said, Kia looked at me and said, nobody goes to India for a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's just it. I love taking groups there, though, because if you want to work some of these yogic principles, you know, like Light Laid and Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, if we want to work these, there's no better place than India because you turn the tap on and you, you're, it's freezing outside and you really need hot water and it doesn't work. Yeah. Or maybe a little trickle of cold water comes out or the light switch is not on or the internet goes down or, 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 or. So I find that when we go there as Americans or Westerners, we always go there with a sort of a, a, a sense of privilege. Yeah. And, um, and suddenly when base things that we're used to, that we take for granted, are not there, we get to see how we deal with those challenging situations. And people have meltdowns left and right over the <laughs> smallest things. Which is perfect when yeah. you're studying deep yogic philosophy because you get to see yourself. Oh, yeah. wait, I just flipped out at somebody because it didn't go to my preference. Yeah. Oh, I get to look at that in myself now and work the yoga. So that's one of the things I like about it. Of course, that's the challenging side. The beauty of it is um, the culture, the colors, the, 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 the devotion that I feel in people in India. And also, when you go somewhere where there's been a very strong tradition of meditation for thousands of years, you feel it. Yeah. When I'm in Rishikesh, I feel that subtle reverberation. I wasn't sensitive to it at the beginning, and I'd been meditating or trying to meditate <laughs> for some years uh, before I first went there. And... What happened to me was I just fell naturally into a deep meditative state. And so then I got to, I got to actually witness, oh, that's what, that's what it really means. And what I found every time I go to India is my personal practice um, gets deeper and deeper and deeper, mm. effortlessly. Yeah. So there's something about just being there and being around some of the real yogic masters um, just in their energetic field and listening to their their satsangs, their talks, and then feeling the energy of all these thousands of years of meditation, it, it changes you in a really profound way. 
I, I see everybody who comes on trips with us there, they are not the same person when they come home. Mm. This, it's like the, there's a spiritual fire that's lit. And I, and I don't mean a religious fire, it's a spiritual fire. That quest to, to know themselves on a really deep level and to do whatever it takes to know themselves is lit. And so I peep, see people, you know, really transform on, on that kind of inner level when yeah. they come there. Yeah, it's so funny. It's like I, I talk about um, in teacher trainings, uh, there's a person that predates even Pontanjali's name's Kapila. And in his writings, it all has basically the same thing, Pontanjali. There's asana, there's pranayama, and there's all this uh, meditation and everything. Um, but he says in there, because you just said, oh, it's not religious fire, it's spiritual mm-hmm. fire. In there, he says, by this process or any other true process. That's right. That's right. You know, you can and, attain enlightenment. Yeah. And um, he's just recognizing, because it's not, it's, yoga is non-denomination, non-sectarian. It's, it's um, if it has the true principles and founding ways of where you can elevate your consciousness, it is, it is accepted. That's right. Um, all right. paths lead to the one. Yeah. <laughs> it is that too, isn't it? Yeah. If it's yeah. the true, if it's true path, it will lead you there. Yeah. Um, if, because uh, we're running out of time, yes. if you have any um, uh, last words that you want to share with anybody, any final thoughts? Uh, I would just say, if you were inspired by, I don't know, anything that we shared here, um, and, and, and you want to go deeper into your own being and your own understanding of yourself, I would explore some, I would explore kind of three levels of, of yourself and your relationships, and that's your relationship to your food. Just spend some time noting what that is, how that transpires for you. I would uh, observe your relationship to your breath and how you're breathing um, and and start to look into um, different breath techniques. Um, and if nothing else, just starting to develop a long, deep, smooth breath and seeing how just that simple practice can really transform your life. And then looking at your relationship with yourself and doing something that helps to light that inner fire, your own inner fire. Um, that that can inspire you to yeah. keep knowing yourself better because I know that uh, the first third of my life I was doing what I thought other people wanted me to do I was being who I thought other people wanted me to be and it wasn't until that fire got lit in yoga practice that I started to understand that there was that there was a, a me underneath all of that there was a there was an energy that wanted to express through me that was unique and individual that obviously we all have. So that that would be what I would say. Thank you. That was <laughs> awesome. Um, where can people find or connect with you? Uh, uh, social media, website? Kia Miller Yoga. Most social media, I'm at Kia Miller Yoga. My uh, website, kiamiller.com. And uh, I actually have a cleanse journey uh, coming out very soon on Yoga Glow. Wonderful. Um, so if people want to cleanse with me, you can do it there. <laughs> you can tune in. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kia, as always, it's always uh, a pleasure hanging out with you and talking with you. And thanks for coming on. Thank you. And to all our listeners, until next time, namaste. Namaste.